In this portion of the program, I would like to share with you how nonviolent communication can contribute to our attempts to bring about change. Change within ourselves, change in people whose behavior is not in harmony with our values, and change in the structures that we're living within. Earlier, I've outlined the purpose of nonviolent communication to create a connection that allows compassionate giving to take place. And I clarified the basic literacy that's necessary to live in this way, which is a literacy of feelings, needs, requests, how to express them in a way that is a gift to other people. They can see what's alive in us. They can see what would make life more wonderful. And that's a gift because then it gives them a chance to willingly contribute to our well-being. And that talked about how through empathic connection we can receive that gift from other people, even when they're using a language which is quite violent. Now let's look at how nonviolent communication can contribute to change. We want people to change not because of fear that we're going to punish them if they don't or guilt them if they don't. We want them to change because they see better ways of meeting their needs at less cost. So let's look at how that change can occur within ourselves, with other people whose behavior is not in harmony with our values, and with social structures that are behaving in ways that are not in harmony with our values. First, ourselves. Think of a mistake you made recently, something you did that you wished you hadn't done. Then think of how do you educate yourself when you have done something that you wished you hadn't done. That is, what did you tell yourself at the moment that you saw what you had done? The other day I was doing a training with some people and we were seeing how nonviolent communication can be used within ourselves to learn from our limitations without losing self-respect. And a woman picked a situation that she had been screaming at her child that morning before coming to the training. She said some things to the child that she wished she hadn't done. And she saw the look in the child's eyes. And she saw how hurt the child looked. And I ask her this question. How did you educate yourself at that moment? What did you say to yourself? And she said, I said, what a terrible mother I am. I said to myself, I shouldn't have talked that way to the child. I said, what's wrong with me? Unfortunately, that's how many people educate themselves. They educate themselves in the way that people educated us when we did things that authorities didn't like. They blamed us, punished us, so we internalize that. So now we often educate ourselves through guilt, shame, and other forms of violent, coercive tactics. So we know we're doing that. We know that we are educating ourselves in a violent way. Three feelings will tell us that. Depression, guilt, and shame. You see, I think we feel depressed a good deal of the time, not because it means we're ill or something is wrong with us, but because we have been taught to educate ourselves with moralistic judgments, to blame ourselves, 
to think like this mother did, that because she had screamed at her child, that there was something wrong with her. She was a bad mother. Incidentally, I often tell people, if you want to know my definition of hell, it's have children and think there is such a thing as a good parent. You'll spend a good deal of your life being depressed because it's a hard job. It's an important job, and we're going to do things repeatedly we wish they hadn't done. So we need to learn, but without hating ourselves. Because learning that occurs through guilt or shame is costly learning. It's too late now to undo that learning. We have it within ourselves. We've been trained to educate ourselves with these kind of violent judgments. So we show people in our training how, when you are talking to yourself like that, to bring those judgments out into the light, to see what you're telling yourself, to see that this is your way of educating yourself, to call yourself names, to think of what's wrong with you. Then when you see that, we show them how to look behind these judgments to the need which is at the root of them. That is, what need of yours wasn't met by the behavior? And I ask this mother that. What need of yours was not met by how you talked to the child? And with a little help from me, she got in touch with the need. She says, Marshall, I have a real need to respect people, especially my children. Talking to my child that way didn't meet my need for respect. And I say, now that your attention is on your needs, how do you feel? She says, I'm sad. I say, how does that sadness feel compared to what you were thinking a few moments ago when you were thinking that you're a terrible mother and that other judgments that you were making of yourself? She says, it's almost like a sweet pain now. Yes, because it's a natural pain, you see. To be in touch with needs of ours that weren't met by our behavior I call that mourning, mourning our actions, but mourning without blaming ourselves, mourning without thinking there's something wrong with us for doing what we did. And when I help people to get to that connection, they often describe the pain in a similar way that she does. It's almost like a sweet pain compared to the depression, the guilt, the shame we feel when we are educating ourselves through blame and judgments. I then asked her to look at the good reasons why she did what she did. She said, huh? I said, let's look at the good reasons you did what you did. I don't understand what you mean. You mean screaming at the child the way I did? What do you mean by good reason? I say, it's important for us to be conscious that we never do anything except for good reasons. I don't think any human being does anything except for good reasons. And what are those good reasons? To meet a need. Everything we do is in the service of needs. So I said, what need were you trying to meet when you talked to the child that way? She said, are you saying it was right? I'm not saying it was right to talk to the child that way. I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm suggesting that we learn to look at the needs we're trying to meet by doing what we did. We can learn best from it if we do two things. First, see the need that wasn't met by the behavior. And next, to be conscious of the need we were trying to meet by doing what we did. 
When we have our consciousness on those two needs, I believe it heightens our ability to learn from our limitations without losing self-respect. So what was your need that we were trying to meet by saying what you did to the child at that time? Well, she says, Marshall, I really have a need for the child to be protected in, in life, and, and if this child doesn't learn how to do things differently, I'm really scared of what could happen to them. Yes. So you really have a need for your child's well-being, and you were trying to contribute. But she says, that's a terrible way to do it, to scream like that. Well, <laughs> we've already looked at that part of yourself that doesn't like what you did. It didn't meet your need to respect other people. But now let's be conscious of what need of yours was met by doing it. You care for the child. You wanted to protect the child's well-being. Yes. I believe we have a much better chance to learn how to handle other situations in the future if we ask ourselves, how could I have met both needs? Like now, when you have those two needs in mind, can you imagine how you might have expressed yourself differently? She said, oh, yes, yes, I can see that if I had been in touch with those needs, I would have expressed myself quite differently. So this is how we show people how to use nonviolent communication within themselves. When we do something that we don't like, how first to mourn, to empathize with ourself, the need of ours that wasn't met. And very often we'll have to do that by hearing through these judgments that we have been programmed to think in terms of. And in this way we can make good use of our depression, guilt, and shame those feelings we can use as an alarm clock to wake us up to the fact that at this moment we're really not connected to life, life defined as being in touch with our needs. We're up in our head playing violent games with ourselves, calling ourselves names. So if we can learn how to empathically connect with the need of ours that didn't get met and then look at the part of ourself that was trying to meet a need of ours, to see what it was. Now that part of ourself that did the act, it's often not easy to empathically connect with that need, because very often if we look inside and say, what was going on in me when I did that, very often we say things to ourselves like, I had to do it, I had no choice. Well, that's never true. We always have a choice. We don't do anything we didn't choose to do. We chose to behave that way to meet a need. And so then we need to direct our attention to what need of mine was trying to be met. A very important part of nonviolent communication is this recognition of choice at every moment. At every moment we choose to do what we do. We don't do anything that isn't coming out of choice. And every choice we make is in the service of a need. Any living phenomenon, I would say that's true about. Whether it's a dog or a human being, every choice we make is in the service of a need. So that's how nonviolent communication works within us. We need to learn how to create peace within ourselves when there's a conflict between what we do and what we wish we had done. If we're going to be violent to ourselves, how are we going to contribute to creating a world of peace? Peace begins within us. But by saying that, I'm not saying that we have to get totally liberated from all of our inner violent learning before we look outside ourselves to the world and see how we can contribute to social change at a broader level. 
I'm saying we need to do these simultaneously. We need to be conscious of the work we need to do within ourselves if we're going to be effective in our social change work. And while we're doing that, we also need to look outside of ourselves to the changes we would like to see happen. So let's look at some other changes and how nonviolent communication can help us. Some people obviously behave in ways that are pretty frightening. People that we call criminals. They steal, they rape. What if we're around people who do behave this way, that we find very frightening? How do we change these individuals or get them to change? Well, here is where we really need to learn restorative justice. We need to learn not to punish people when they behave in ways we don't like. As I've earlier said, punishment is a losing game. We want people to change behavior, not because they're going to be punished if they continue. We want them to change the behavior because they see other options that better meet their needs at less cost. I tried to make this point clear to a mother in Switzerland at a workshop of mine. She said, Marshall, how do I get my son to stop smoking? I said, is that your objective, to get him to stop smoking? She said, yes. I said, then he'll continue. She said, huh, what do you mean? I said, whenever our objective is to get somebody to stop doing something, we lose power. If we really want to have power in change, whether it's personal change, changing an individual, or changing society, we need to come from a consciousness of how the world can be better. And we want people to come out of that consciousness to see how their needs can better be met at less cost. We then looked at how this would apply to her situation with her child. And she was in great pain about this because she was worried about his health. For two years, he had been smoking and they had almost daily fights about his smoking. And her objective was to get him to stop. And she was trying to tell him how horrible it was. So she said, Marshall, how would nonviolent communication help me in this situation? Well, I said, I hope we've got the first part clear. Your objective is not to get him to stop. It's to help him find other ways of meeting whatever needs the smoking is meeting at less cost. She says, that's, that's helpful. That's really helpful now. But how do I communicate with him? Well, I would suggest beginning by sincerely communicating to him that you see that his smoking is absolutely the most wonderful thing he could be doing. She said, huh? What do you mean? I said, he wouldn't be smoking if it wasn't meeting his needs. So if we can sincerely show an empathic connection with what needs he's trying to meet, he sees that we understand why he's doing it. We're not judging him or blaming him for it. When people feel that quality of understanding, then they're much more open to hearing other options. But if they think we have single-mindedness of purpose to change them, that they feel they're being blamed for what they're doing, it makes change difficult. So the first step is to sincerely communicate that you see that what he's doing is the absolutely most wonderful way he knows how to meet his needs. This woman came back after lunch, and she was glowing, just glowing. And she said, Marshall, thank you so much for what you taught me this morning. She said, I had the most wonderful communication with my son over lunchtime. 
I said, how did you get home so quickly? Because this workshop was taking place up in the mountains. She said, no, no, I called him up on the phone. And we had the most wonderful communication. I said, well, tell me about it. Well, she said, first of all, when I called home, his 13-year-old brother answered. And I said, quick, uh, put your brother on the phone. I want to talk to him. And uh, my 13-year-old said, uh, well, uh, uh, he's on the back porch. And the mother told me, then I knew he was smoking, because after two years of fighting about the smoking, at least he agreed that if he would smoke, he would do it outside and not inside. So I said to my 13-year-old son, that's okay, just tell him I want to talk to him. So now the 15-year-old comes on the phone and says, what do you want? And the mother said, I learned something about your smoking today that I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, what? She said, I've learned it's the most wonderful thing you could be doing. Now, I said to the mother, uh, that wasn't exactly how I meant for you to do that. I, I was really meaning that we communicate that through empathic connection by showing that you understand. She said, oh, oh I got that, Marshall. I, I understood that. But, you know, I know this guy, and, and I really felt I could get that across to him much quicker by just saying the statement that I, I see that it's the most wonderful thing you could be doing. Well, I said, you know him. Okay, so what happened? She said, Marshall, what happened was profound, especially if you knew how much we had fought about this. First, he was silent for a very long time. And then he said, I'm not so sure about that. You see, once people don't have to defend themselves against our single-mindedness of purpose to change them, once they feel understood for what they're doing, it's much easier for them to be open to other possibilities. So, for example, when I'm working in prisons, you see, I use this same principle. If somebody's doing something I don't like, I try to begin with empathic connection, with what needs of theirs are they trying to meet by doing what they're doing. And once I've understood that, then I suggest looking for other ways of meeting their needs, more effective and less costly. I was in a prison in the United States, state of Washington, and working with a young man who had third time in prison for sexually molesting children. And I wanted to start by empathically connecting to what was alive in him when he was doing this to children. And I suggested that uh, I would like to understand better what was going on in him when he did it, and would he tell me what needs he was trying to meet by doing this. He looks stunned when I ask him that question. He says, what are you asking for? I said, I'm sure you do it for good reason. This is your third time in prison for this offense. And I don't have to tell you that sex offenders in prison, it's not a fun life. No, you're darn right it is. Yeah. So obviously, if you are going to do this and have to pay so much for it, it must be meeting some needs of yours. Let's identify those needs, because I believe that once we understand those needs, we'll be able to find another way of meeting the needs more effective and less costly. So what are your needs? He said, are you saying it was right to do what I did? No, I said, I'm not saying it was right. I'm saying you did it for the same reason I do everything I do, to meet needs. So what are your needs being met by doing this? He said, I do it because I'm dirt. Now, now you're thinking of what you are. How long have you thought you were dirt? He said, my whole life. I said, has it stopped you from doing this? No. So I don't think judging yourself is going to meet your needs or the needs of people in your community. 
but I think everybody's needs can get met if we start by understanding what needs of yours are being met by doing this. Now, he required some help on my part because he wasn't trained to think of what his needs were. He had been in prisons and schools and other things in a family that had made him feel like dirt. He had been educated to think of what he was, not what his needs were. We found many needs. Let me just give you a couple of them to give you an example of what goes on inside of a person. First, he took these children into his apartment and treated them very well. He showed them television programs they liked. He gave them foods they liked. I said, what need of yours is met when you do that? It turned out that this man had always been very lonely. He had never had his need for community met, connection, companionship. This was the best way he had ever found, to bring these children in, treat them well. He met that need. But, of course, he could have met that need without sexually molesting them. So then we turned to, then, what need of yours was being met by that? And when we got to it, it took a while, because this was not easy to look inside and see. He realized that his need of doing that was for understanding, empathy. From the terror in their eyes, he felt they understood what he felt when he was a child and his father did this to him. See, he didn't realize that was his need. He didn't know other ways of meeting that need. But once we got it clear, obviously there are many other ways to get that need met than to tyrannize people. So that's how we use nonviolent communication with people who are behaving in ways we don't like. I first start by empathically connecting to what needs of theirs are being met by doing it. And then I let them know that what need of mine is not being met by how they're doing that the fear that I feel by how they behave, or the discomfort I feel. And we explore other ways of meeting both of our needs that are more effective and less costly. So there we've seen how nonviolent communication helps us to bring about change within ourself, change with other people, but it requires this need consciousness. It requires an awareness that all blame, all judgments, like I'm dirt, like I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. These self-judgments get in the way of learning. Makes it hard to learn more effective ways of living at less cost. But now let's take a look at not individuals that we would like to change. Let's look at how nonviolent communication can help us transform gangs gangs that behave in ways we don't like. Some gangs call themselves gangs, street gangs. They're not the ones that scare me the most. Other gangs call themselves multinational corporations. Some gangs call themselves governments. So many of the people that I'm working with around the world, it's not individual behaviors that concern them. It's what these various kinds of gangs are doing. I would hope we all have a consciousness of how gang behavior affects how we are educated, what we carry within ourselves. Let me show you what I mean. I've been suggesting that certain language, certain communication has been very destructive. 
But where did this come from? Where did this language come from, these moralistic judgments? Where did these tactics of punishment and reward come from? Why do we use them? We learn these tactics because they support certain gang behavior. For example, let's look at our schools. Our schools teach people, according to Michael Katz, an educational historian who studied educational change, and from the history of public education in the United States, about every 20 years, citizens start to get concerned and at great risk make educational changes that are very good from the standpoint of kids learn more, there's less violence in the school. But in these new schools, within five years, they're gone. And in his book, Cast Bureaucracy in the Schools, Michael Katz shows why he thinks this is so. He says the problem is the reformers try to show what's wrong with the schools and try to change that. They don't see what's right with them. The schools are doing what they were set up to do, which is to support gang behavior. Which gang? The economic structure gang. The people who control our businesses. They control our schools. They have their own idea of how education should be, which is to do three things in our schools. First, to teach people obedience to authority. So when they get hired, they'll do what they're told. Second, the schools are set up to get people to work for extrinsic rewards. Not because what they're learning is going to enrich their lives, but so they'll get grades, they'll get rewarded, so they'll get better high-paying jobs in the future. If you're going to hire a person in a gang that puts out a product or service that doesn't really serve life, but makes a lot of money for the owners of this gang, you want workers who aren't asking themselves, is this product we're turning out really serving life? No, no, you don't want them to ask that question. You just want them to do what they're told and to work for a salary. And Michael Katz says the third function of our schools that makes it hard to change them, that they're doing well, is to maintain a caste system and make it look like a democracy. So our educational system is set up so that people from elite positions will continue in an elite position because they already are taught what's mostly taught in the schools before they go into the classroom so they get the highest grades. So it's not individuals that they want to change, but it's a structure like the schools. They want to transform the schools so that the schools better serve people than the way they're set up. Now, this doesn't mean the teachers within the schools are enemies. No, not at all. They really genuinely want to contribute to children's well-being. There's no enemies here. It's the structure. It's the gang that is the problem. The structures that we have set up to maintain our economy. So one evidence of that is the schools. So we may want to use social change by radically transforming schools. So in several countries now, we're working with citizens and making radical transformations in schools so that schools, the teachers, the students work in harmony with the principles of nonviolent communication. I'm pleased to say we have many such schools now in Serbia, Italy, Israel, Palestine. And we're hopeful how by radically transforming the schools, we will transform the consciousness of the next generation of children. But the schools themselves, I'm suggesting, are controlled by a broader gang. 
the economic gang, the economic structure gang. So we need to not only change the schools, but we need to realize that the schools are part of a bigger structure. Well, how do we get the energy to do all this work? I mean, how do we work on ourselves to transform the world within ourselves? How do we have human connections with our people around us? And then how do we have enough energy left over to tackle these larger gangs, like the government gangs that are oppressing people, to change the gangs that are controlling our judicial system? I hope by now everybody is aware of the total failure of our punitive structures that are part of our judicial system. We need to transform to restorative justice away from retributive justice. We know from research in the United States in the beginning of our prisons that two people, the same offense, one goes into our prisons and one doesn't. The one that goes into the prison is more likely to behave in a violent way when they get out than one who doesn't. We know that the people who get killed in our capital punishment uh, far more likely be low-income people of different nationalities originally than Americans. We know that this is horrible that this happens, but it's the system, the gang that needs to change. The individuals within it are not monsters, but it's the gangs we need to change. So where do we find the energy and the skill to do this? When we have been so affected internally by these gangs that it's all we can take care of just to get ourselves and our own families in order. Where the hell does the energy come to care for humanity when it's more than I can cope with? Taking care of me My government sells weapons When peace is what we need And our compassionate nature Is buried beneath our greed With divine energy within us How tragic we breed such fear and let violence and starvation kill millions of us each year. I see people on the streets not getting enough. But how can I help them when making it myself is rough? Prisons are a disgrace, our mental hospitals too. But burying my head in the sand is easy to do. I get sicker every day from all the oppression I see. But worrying about losing what I've got makes a coward of me Where the hell does the energy come to care for humanity when it's more than I can cope with taking care of me
So in our trainings, we want people to come out not only with awareness of how nonviolent communication can be used internally to transform our inner world. We want people to see how it can be used to create the world outside that we want to live within and that we do have the power, we do have the energy, we can get it. So how do we do that? First, we need to liberate ourselves from enemy images to think that the people who are running things now, the gangs that are creating the pain, we certainly have to relieve ourselves of enemy images, to not think that there's something wrong with the people who are part of these gangs. Now, that's not easy to do. It's hard to see that the human beings who are doing that are human like the rest of us. That's why the first thing we do with people when we're training them how to tackle these gangs is how to do the despair work that's necessary. And that means looking inside and dealing with your own pain in relationship to the gangs, to transform all the enemy images you have of the other people just into what needs of yours are not getting met. And then we show people that no matter what level the social change, even if you're trying to tackle a big gang like a government or a multinational corporation, that basically what it boils down to, the change will occur when a significant number of people radically change how they see things within that gang. And they see more effective ways of getting their human needs met than continuing the gang behavior. So once again, we see that we try to get change not by destroying the structures that are there, but by connecting with people within those structures to see more effective ways of meeting their needs that also meet the needs of others as well. So we want to change some multinational corporations and their practices, not because we convince them that they're evil people who are destroying the environment and oppressing people from other countries because of hiring practices and other trade practices. No, we want to connect with these people within these gangs, to show them how you cannot meet your own needs at other people's expense. So we want to help them get clear what their needs are and to find other ways of transforming their organization to better meet their needs at less cost to themselves and other people. Now, this kind of communication can be time-consuming, and difficult because it could be that it's not one or two people that we need to have this connection with and have this transformative experience with. Because some gang behavior, to change it, might need millions of people to act differently. For example, if this gang is a government, we might need to get a certain percentage of the population to see more effective ways of meeting their needs than the present gang is doing and to see other ways of meeting those needs. Sometimes the gang might be four or five people who control it, have the top positions, and if they can see other ways of getting their needs met that's less costly, more effective, we can bring about the social change we want. But in any event, it's usually more than one person can do. So we then need, as part of our social change efforts, to connect with other people who share a similar vision. 
And so in nonviolent communication, we then show how nonviolent communication can be used to identify those people who share your vision of the world you'd like to create, the structures you want to create, and then to create a team working together to bring about these changes. Now, very often, these teams we get involved in to bring about social change then have wars within themselves because we're very often carrying within ourselves skills that do not lend themselves to good teamwork. So even though we're trying to change outside structures that seem very large and seem a big task, then it seems even more difficult because our group within gets into inner warfare. So in our social change efforts, we show social change teams how to use nonviolent communication to work better as a team, to make their meetings more productive. For example, I was working with a team of citizens in uh, San Francisco, a team of minority citizens who were most concerned about the schools that their children were going to. Their interpretation of the schools is that it was destroying the spirit of their children. And there were certain structures that they wanted to change. However, they said to me, Marshall, the problem is we've been getting together for about six months to try to create social change, but all we do is get into arguments or unproductive discussions, and we never get anywhere. So can you show us how nonviolent communication can help us build a team, make more effective use of our meetings? So I went to their meeting, and I said, have your usual meeting, and I'll see if I can show you how nonviolent communication can be used in making your teamwork more effective. Well, the first thing that was brought up in this meeting, one of the men had clipped an article out of the newspaper, and it was an article of how parents were accusing a principal of abusing one of their children. And the principal was a white person and the child was a, a minority person. And so he read this article. And then another man responded to it and said, that's nothing. I went to that same school when I was a kid. Let me tell you what happened to me. And then for the next 10 minutes, everybody was talking about things that had happened to them in the past and what a racist system it was and so forth. I let this go on for about that length of time. And I said, excuse me, I'd like to ask you all, raise your hand if you found the meeting to this point productive. Not one hand went up. Here this group of people had been getting together to bring about change in a system and had had ten minutes of a discussion and nobody found it productive. These people had to leave their families to come for that meeting. It wasn't easy to find this time and energy. So when we're trying to tackle gangs, structures, social change, we can't burn our energy out with unproductive meetings. So I went back to the gentleman who started the conversation, and I said, Sir, can you tell me what was your request of the group? What did you want back from the group when you read that article from the newspaper? He said, Well, I thought it was important. It was interesting. I said, I'm sure you thought it was interesting, but notice that's telling me what you think. I'm asking, what did you want back from the group? I don't know what I wanted. And I said, that's why I think we had 10 minutes of unproductive discussion. Because whenever we take the attention of a group and present something and we're not clear what we want, it's a very good likelihood that we're not going to have a very productive encounter. 
So nonviolent communication shows us whether we're talking with an individual or a group to be sure that you end whatever you're saying with clarity about what you want back. What is your request back? By just presenting your pain or your thoughts without a clear request is very likely to be the stimulus of a very unproductive discussion. So this was one of several ways we showed the people how nonviolent communication could be useful in making their meetings more productive. I was working with another team of minority citizens wanting to change hiring practices in another gang in the city. It was a government gang. I think it was in the health services department. But they were concerned about the hiring practices of this gang. They felt the hiring practices were oppressive because they discriminated against certain people. So they wanted me to show them how nonviolent communication could be helpful to them in getting their needs better met by that gang. So we worked at nonviolent communication for three days. I showed them the process and how it could be used. And then they would go out that afternoon and come back the next morning and we would see how it went. The next morning they came back very discouraged. And one of them said, we knew it wouldn't work. There's no way to change this system. I say, okay, I can see you're really discouraged. Yes, yes. So tell me what happened so we can learn from this. And the team of six of them had gone into this administrator's office, and they told me how they had used nonviolent communication very well. They hadn't gone in and diagnosed the system as oppressive, and they had been real clear. They made a clear observation of what was going on, the law that they were concerned about that didn't allow for the hiring of certain people that they felt was discriminatory. Second, they expressed their feelings, how painful it was for them, because they had a need for work and a need for equality, and they felt they could do this work, and how painful it was for them to be excluded from this work. And they made a clear request of him, saying exactly how they would like to see the hiring practices changed to better allow for them to be hired. So they told me how they said it, and I was very pleased. They incorporated beautifully the training we had gone through. They had made real clear what their needs were, what their requests were. They didn't use insulting language. That, and I said, I like how you express that, but uh, what was his response? And they said, oh, he was very nice. You know, he said, thank you for coming in. It's very important in a democracy that the citizens express themselves, and we encourage that in this organization. But at the moment, your request is quite unrealistic, and I'm, I'm sorry that it won't be possible right now. But thank you for coming in. And I said to them, then what did you do? Well, we left. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the other half that I showed you? How to hear behind that bureaucratic ease? What was in his heart? What was he feeling? What was he needing? Where was that human being in relationship to what you wanted? Oh, one of them said, we know what was going on in him. He wanted us to get out of there. Well, even if that's so, what was going on in him? What was he feeling? What was he needing? He's a human being. What was that human being feeling and needing? Well, they forgot to see his humanness, because this is within a structure, you see. And within a structure, he was speaking structure language, you see, not human language, the language of bureaucracy. As Walter Wink says, 
organizations, structures, governments have their own spirituality. And within those environments, people communicate in a way that supports that spirituality. So nonviolent communication shows us a way of, no matter what the structure, to cut through it and see the human being within it. So I could see that I hadn't trained them well enough on how to do that. So we practiced that. We practiced how to hear behind all that bureaucratic language, how to see the human being and make a connection that strengthens our ability to work towards social change with that person. So after our training at that level, they made another appointment with this man, and they came back the next morning delighted. Because when they saw what was behind his messages, they saw that he was scared. He actually shared their needs. He didn't like either to see how this law was discriminatory. But he had another need, to protect himself. And he knew that his boss would be very upset with this suggestion, because his boss was vehemently opposed to what they were after. So he had a need to protect himself and didn't want to go to the boss and help them to get this passed. So once this team of citizens saw what his needs were, they worked together, but in a way that got everybody's needs met. What happened is he mentored them. He led them through what they would need to go through to get what they wanted. And they met his need by protecting him, by not letting anybody know that he was mentoring them. And they got the change in that structure that they wanted. So a very important part of social change is, again, not to see the people within these structures as enemies. To try to hear, even if they're speaking the language of the structures, how to see the human being behind it. But to persist in keeping the flow of communication going so that everybody's needs get met. Another social change project that I was involved in involved me with a street gang. I worked with this street gang when one of the members and I happened to come into contact and he thought that what I was offering, if it was adjusted to his culture, he thought it could be very helpful. So I was working with this gang and we subsequently over years did a lot of work together in school desegregation work throughout the United States. But one thing that we wanted to do together as part of social change was to create a school that would show that the students who were now being kicked out or pushed out of schools could be educated if they were educated in a way in which the teachers and the students worked as partners, not in which the teachers tried to control the students. So part of this social change was to first have a school that was a demonstration school in which we would show that we could reach the students that were usually being kicked out or pushed out of schools. And then to use this as a step toward broader changes in the school system. However, the first part of this required to raise some money because for the project that we had in mind to create this school would require $50,000 to pay the teachers and get the school and so forth. And this is a very important part of social change very often. How do you get the resources that you need? So I learned a lesson from this gang member in how to make the best use of a short period of time when you are in social change efforts. This is very important because there's obviously a lot of communication that needs to go on in some social change efforts. Some communication organizing your team. Some communication getting access to key people that you need to talk with. So 
we need to not only speak nonviolent communication from the heart, but we need to be brief and clear and make the most out of short periods of time. So I learned a good lesson this one day from the gang member that I was working with. He said to me, why don't we go down to that foundation that you've been doing some work for? They give money. Why can't we go down there and get the money for this project? Yeah, I said, I sure would like them to do it, but I know that right now that uh, they don't accept applications for another couple months. This quarter is over. And not only that, in order to get money from them, you have to have a big proposal and, you know, that we don't have the time or the resources right now to get that kind of proposal done. He said, yeah, yeah, that's one way to do it, but can you get the appointment? I said, yeah, I can probably get the appointment with this person. He says, well, get the appointment and let's go down there and get the money. I said, what are you going to do if I get the appointment? He said, let me handle it. Let me handle it. So I called up and I said, uh, this is Dr. Rosenberg. Uh, I was working last month with uh, the administrators and uh, could I uh, have a meeting with the president? And the secretary said, well, you know he's very busy, Dr. Rosenberg, but I'll see and call you back. So she calls me back and says, uh, we can fit you in between uh, meetings. Uh, he'd be glad to see you, but it'll only be about 20 minutes. How's that, Dr. Rosenberg? I said, thank you, yeah. So as we're driving down, I said uh, to my colleague, I said, now, what are you going to do during this 20 minutes? He said, let me handle it. Let me handle it. So we get into the meeting, and I politely introduce the two of them. I say, Dr. X, uh, this is uh, my colleague, uh, Al. And Al, this is Dr. X. And uh, Al reaches over, shakes his hand, and says, Hi, brother. Where's the money? Uh, I could have beaten him on the head with a broom. You know, I was so embarrassed that he would start a professional meeting like this. See, my usual approach would have been to go in with a proposal and uh, slides and to try to document all of the value of what we were trying to do to get the money. But this man is starting just the opposite. He's saying... We're here to get some money. What do you need to hear from us to decide whether you want to give it or not? So now this man was not used to this way of somebody starting. He kind of, in a very polite, laughed, <laughs> what money? And my colleague said, money for the fun school. The fun school, what's that? It's a school Rosenberg and our gang is setting up to show that kids kicked out of school can make it if they're treated differently. What is this fun school like? But now notice what he's done in our precious time instead of our going in and filling the airspace with what we think the other person needs to hear. He started off from the very beginning by essentially saying to the other person in his cultural style, what do you need to hear from us to give us what we came for? And let the other person direct where the conversation goes. We walked out with $50,000. And over the years since that happened, which is about 30 years ago, I have used that principle repeatedly in my social change efforts, not necessarily starting as he did in his cultural style, but to begin the dialogue by setting it up from the very beginning where the other person can find out from me what they need to hear to decide whether they want to support the change that I'm interested in or not. I used that principle once with a key committee in Sweden made up of top government people and top business leaders, and there was a social change project my colleagues there and I wanted to talk to them about supporting. And it took us some work to get to this committee, part of one of their meetings, but they finally did agree to give us 20 minutes at their meeting. So 
I was uh, sitting waiting, and while my colleague and I were waiting, a secretary came out and said, Dr. Rosenberg, I apologize, but the committee wants me to tell you that they're running a little late, and instead of the 20 minutes that we said we could allot you, we only have five. Okay, well, if I only have five minutes, all the more reason to use what I learned from my colleague. So I go into this meeting, and in my way, I told them exactly what I hope they would agree to, what do you need to know from me to decide in this five minutes whether you want to agree to that? They took 40 minutes asking questions. I didn't. They, they directed it. But even if they had only given me the five minutes, I think I can get more out of it by letting them tell me what they need to hear rather than my using a lot of words that isn't going to help. So that's another application of social change and how nonviolent communication can be applied, how to get these important meetings, most productive, not filled with just a lot of words, but to create a flow in which the other person can tell us what they need to know to decide whether we can work together. Now, of course, social change is going to involve a lot of confrontation at times. So we need to learn how to use nonviolent communication when we are up against people who are opposed to what we are after but they don't know how to express themselves in a way that clearly communicates their feelings and needs. So we need to know how, under these confrontive conditions, how to hear people's feelings and needs, no matter how they are communicating. So one example of that was in a social change project I was involved in in Illinois. This one involved a school that we had created, but we wanted to go from this school to the whole system functioning in harmony with the principles of this school. It was very hard to get this school going, but we finally, after much uh, resistance, we did get federal funding that allowed us to start this school. However, to the next school board election, after the school was created, and even though it won a national award for educational excellence, academic achievement went up, vandalism went down, in spite of it being successful, four members got elected to the board to get rid of the superintendent and the school. Well, we could see then that if we were to have this social change project survive, we were going to need now to communicate with these people who were vehemently opposed to what we were doing. It wasn't easy to get a meeting with this board. It was a board of seven people that we wanted to meet with to see if we could use nonviolent communication to connect in a way in which everybody's needs could get met. It took us 10 months to arrange a three-hour meeting. First of all, he wouldn't answer my phone calls. They wouldn't answer my letters. I went down to the office once, but they wouldn't see me. So it took us 10 months, and during that time, we had to find somebody that had access to them and train this person in our skills so that this person could go to them and see if it was possible to work out a meeting. And she did. She finally got them, after 10 months, to have the board meet with me and the school superintendent. And they had conditions. They didn't want the press to know about this, because this would be embarrassing if they were seen talking with people that they got elected to get rid of. Okay, now, how did nonviolent communication help me in that setting? First of all, I knew I had to do some work on myself before we had that meeting, because I had enemy images of this board. 
I had trouble imagining them as human beings. I had a lot of pain inside as a result of some things they had said about me. For example, one of them owned the local newspaper. And I had read an article he had written about me in which he said, Are you aware that our beloved superintendent, and he put beloved in quotes because everybody knew he hated the superintendent, has brought in his Jew again to brainwash our teachers so that they can brainwash our students. That was only one sample of things that I had heard this man had said about me, and uh, so I had a lot to deal with inside. I also knew that he was the head of the local John Birch Society, and I had some inner judgments about people who belonged to that society. So I had to do some despair work. Despair work, a very important part of social change. Despair work is Joanna Macy's concept, and she's a person working in social change that I admire very much. She points out how important it is to do despair work, and I like very much how she integrates Buddhism into her social change efforts. Sees the importance of spirituality and social change. They go together. If we have a good, powerful spirituality, we are much more likely to reach our social change objectives. So the despair work took this form. I got together with my colleagues on this project the night before our meeting. And I said to them, it's going to be hard for me to see this man as a human being tomorrow when we go in there. I've got so much rage inside, it's, so I need to do some work on myself. So my team listened empathically to what was going on in me. I had this wonderful opportunity of expressing all of my pain and being understood. They could hear the rage I felt, and then behind the rage, my fear about my hopelessness that we could ever get such people to connect with us in a way that would be good for all. It took three hours this night before to do all this work because I had deep pain, a lot of despair, before I could go in the next day. And then part of that time I said, those of you who have seen him communicate, could we do a little role-playing because I want to try to see his humanness through the way he usually speaks. I had never seen the man, but they had, and they showed me how he communicated. So I worked hard the night before to see his humanness so that I wouldn't see him as an enemy. And I was glad we did that the night before because the very next day as we were walking in, he and I happened to be walking through the door at the same time. And the first thing he said to me is, this is a waste of time. If you and the school superintendent want to help this community, you'd leave. My first reaction was to want to grab him and say, look, you said we were going to have a meeting and... Anyway, I took a deep breath. Thank goodness for the despair work the night before. I could get better control over my feelings and tried to connect with his humanness. I said, it sounds like you're feeling kind of hopeless about anything good coming out of this meeting. He seemed a little surprised that I would try to hear his feelings. He said, that's right. The project you and the superintendent are doing is destructive to this community. This permissive philosophy of just allowing children to do whatever they want is ridiculous. Again, I had to take a deep breath because I was frustrated that he would see it as permissiveness. It showed me that we hadn't made clear what our project was. If he had seen it, he would know we had rules, we had regulations, but they weren't set up on the basis of punishment. They weren't administered by authorities. They were worked out in the community between the teachers and the students jointly. So I wanted to jump in and get defensive, but I took a deep breath, thanks to the despair work the night before. And then I could see his humanness. So I said to him, so you really want some recognition for how important it is to have order in the schools. 
He looked at me strangely again. That's right. You people are menaces. We had great schools in this community before you and the superintendent came. Again, my first reaction was to show that all the violence that had been going on in the schools, how the academic achievement had been very low. But I took a deep breath again, and I said, so there's many things about the schools that you want to support and protect. Anyway, the meeting went pretty well, because even though he was speaking in ways that, if I hadn't done enough work on myself, would have been very easy for me to keep him in this enemy image, but by my continuing to hear what was alive in him, respectfully trying to connect with his needs, I could see him then better able to open up and better understand what we were talking about. I left that meeting feeling very encouraged. I went back to my hotel room, and I felt really good. And the phone rang, and it was this man. And he said, uh, you know, I'm sorry I said some of the things about you in the past. I guess I didn't understand your program. I want to hear more about how you put this together and where you got the ideas and so forth. So we talked like brothers for 40 minutes on the phone. I poured out to him all of this. And then shortly afterwards, my colleagues came to pick me up and take me to the airport so I could go home. And all the way to the airport, I babbled to my colleagues how great it felt. I said, this is proof of what we're talking about, that if even you see the other people, the other side as human beings, you can connect no matter what it is. And oh, I was feeling so good. It reinforced my hopes for social change, that if we can get over these enemy images, we can connect with anybody. I told him about this phone call. The next day, a member of my team called me up and said, Marshall, I've got very bad news for you. I said, what's that? We should have warned you. One of his tactics is to call people on the phone, and he records what they say, and then he takes portions of it out and uses it to ridicule him in his newspaper. It's an old trick of his. We should have warned you. I didn't know who I wanted to kill first, him or me. Me for being so stupid as to trust somebody like that, to think that you can change such a person. Anyway, I was despondent. Well, now here's what happened. When I told this person driving me to the airport this, they told another member of our team. And uh, that member of the team said, did anybody ever tell Marshall about uh, this guy and how he's used that tactic in the past? And uh, anyway, by the time it got back to me, it was as though he had done it to me. He didn't do it to me. And in the next board meeting, he voted in favor of our program, even though he got elected to get rid of it. That was an important lesson for me in social change. It showed me how it took me three hours the night before to go from my enemy image of the other side, to deal with my pain, the despair about social change, to get myself in a position that I could see the other side as human beings. And it took me five seconds the day after to lose that again on the basis of a rumor about the other side. So this is, for me, a very important part of social change, to build into it, this continual keeping connected to the spiritual energy that I think needs to be behind social change, that it comes from our seeing the beauty of what we're for and not that there's bad guys that we're out to conquer. Another important part of social change is gratitude, but not just social change. Gratitude is very necessary to sustain the kind of spiritual consciousness that nonviolent communication tries to support. Because when we know how to express and receive gratitude in a certain way, 
It gives us enormous energy to sustain our social change efforts, but to sustain it through the beauty of what can be, rather than out of an attempt to conquer evil forces. I first got a heavy dose of how important gratitude could be by working with a powerful social change group in Iowa, a feminist group, and I was admiring what they had been getting done, and I felt honored that they wanted me to show them how nonviolent communication might help them in their social change efforts. But one thing was driving me a little batty in my three days with them. Each day they would stop at least a couple times to express gratitude, to celebrate things that they wanted to celebrate. And at that time, I was so preoccupied by how much needed to be done in the world that this was very frustrating to me, to stop a meeting and just give celebration. We've got so much racism, sexism, all of these things, they need to change. And so I was kind of preoccupied so much with what needed to be done that I didn't see much room for celebration. So on the third evening, after our work was done, I was having dinner with the leader of this group. She said, what was it like working with our organization? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I admire very much what you folks are getting done. It was a pleasure to be here. One thing that was a little awkward for me was how often you stop and celebrate and give thanks, and I'm just not used to that. And she said, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Marshall. There's something I wanted to talk to you about. Aren't you worried about any social change effort that's just so preoccupied with how horrible things are that you come from that energy rather than reminding yourself constantly of the beautiful side of life. And so that's why we do gratitude in our social change efforts. We want to all along, even though we know there's so much to be done, we want to really stop and give gratitude to whatever people are doing that is really supporting what we're working toward. And that started me thinking of how much my consciousness was shaped by how bad things are and how much they need to happen and and how much even in my social change efforts this then was creating me being a pretty scary guy, so intent. And from that point to the moment, which has been about 30 years now, I have been working very hard to build in the expression of gratitude into our training in nonviolent communication to see how it can sustain our living in harmony with our spiritual values. Because the more we express and receive gratitude in a certain way, the more it reminds us of the spirituality that nonviolent communication tries to support. As I've said, our spirituality that we're trying to support is to make people conscious moment by moment that we human beings, our purpose in life comes from compassionate giving, compassionate service. There's nothing more wonderful than exercising our power in the service of life. That's a manifestation of our divine energy within us, that that is our greatest joy, to use our efforts in the service of life. So we show people how to express and receive gratitude in nonviolent communication in a way that has that effect, that helps us to sustain our lives in harmony with that spirituality. But that means being conscious of how often we have been taught to express gratitude directly counter to supporting that kind of spirituality. So, in nonviolent communication, we suggest never to give compliments or praise. To see that saying to somebody, you did a good job, 
you're a kind person, you're very competent. That's still using moralistic judgments. That's still creating a world different than the world that Rumi is talking about when he says there is a place beyond rightness and wrongness. I'll meet you there. When we're using judgmental words, praise and compliments, it's the same form of language as saying to somebody you're unkind, you're stupid, you're selfish. So, we suggest to people to be conscious that the positive judgments are equally as dehumanizing to people as the negative judgments. And we also suggest be particularly conscious of how destructive it is to give positive feedback as a reward. Don't dehumanize people by complimenting them or praising them. Now, when I say this to managers in industry or to teachers, they're often shocked. They've often been in training programs that teach them to compliment and praise employees or students daily because performance rises. And I point out to such people that if you look at the research, you will see that, yes, children work harder when they're praised and complimented. Employees work harder when they're praised and complimented for a very short time until they sense the manipulation, until they sense that this is not the real stuff, this is not gratitude from the heart. This is another manipulation, another way of trying to get you to do things. And when people sense the manipulation, the production no longer stays high. If you want to read further the danger of using praise and compliments and other rewards, read Elfie Cohn's book, Punished by Rewards, to see the violence of rewards, to see that it's the same violence as punishment. They both are means of control over people. In nonviolent communication, we want to increase power, but power with people, not over them. So, how do we express and receive gratitude? in nonviolent communication. First, the intent is all important. The intent is to celebrate life, nothing else. We're not trying to reward the other person. We want the other person to know how our life has been enriched by what they did. That's our only intent. And to make clear how our life has been enriched, we need to say to people three things to make it clear. Praise and compliments don't make these three things clear. First, we want to make clear what the person did that we want to celebrate, what action on their part enriched our lives. Second, we want to tell them how we feel about that, what feelings are alive in us as a result of what they've done. And third, what needs of ours were met. I hadn't made this clear to a group of teachers I was dealing with. We ran out of time this day, and just as I was talking about how to express gratitude in nonviolent communication, and after the meeting, one of the teachers ran up to me, and here's how she expressed her gratitude to me. Her eyes were shining, and she said, You're brilliant! I said to her, It doesn't help. She says, What? I said, Telling me what I am doesn't help. I have been called a lot of names in my life, some positive and some far from positive, and I can't ever recall learning anything of value by somebody telling me what I am. I don't think anybody does. I think there's zero information value in being told what you are. But from the look in your eyes, I can see you want to express a gratitude. She says, yes, and I want to receive it. But telling me what I am doesn't give it to me. Well, she said, what do you want me to say? I said, remember what I said in the workshop today. I need to hear three things. 
First of all, what did I do that made life so wonderful for you? She thought for a moment and said, you're so intelligent. No, I said, that's still a diagnosis of me. It doesn't really tell me what I did. I, I'd get more out of your feedback if I knew concretely what I did that really in some way enriched your life. Oh, she says, I got you. I think I understand. She opened up her notebook and she pointed to two things she wrote there and had a big star by them. She said, you said these two things. I looked in her notebook. Yes, I did say those two things. I said, that helps. See, just knowing that that in some way enriched your life. Second, I said, it would help me to know how you feel right now. Oh, Marshall, I feel so relieved and hopeful. Oh. And now third, what need of yours was met by those two things? Marshall, I've never been able to connect with my 18-year-old son. All we do is fight. I have been needing some concrete direction for connecting with him. These two things you said met that need of mine for some concrete direction. So you can see, I'm sure, how different it was to hear those three things than to hear somebody tell me what I was. So that's how we express gratitude in nonviolent communication. Now I'd like to suggest how to receive gratitude in nonviolent communication. And we find in every country how hard it is for people to receive gratitude because their prior training has taught them that you should be humble, you shouldn't think you're anything. And so it's very hard for people to receive gratitude. For example, English-speaking people, they often look terrified when you express gratitude to them. And here's what they say. Oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. French people, same thing. Drien, Spanish, Donada. Swedish, Osh. So all over the world I've asked people, what makes it so hard to receive gratitude? Here's the answers I get. Well, I didn't know that I deserved it. See, this horrible concept of deserve. So you have to earn things, you see? So it makes it hard even to receive gratitude. You have to worry about whether you earned it. Or sometimes they'll say, well, uh, what's wrong with being humble? Well, I said it depends what you mean by humility. There's different kinds of humility. There's the kind that I think is unfortunate because it deprives us of seeing our power, our beauty. I like the way Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister, talked about this false humility to one of her politicians. She said to him once, don't be so humble, you're not that great. But I think the most important reason why people find it hard to receive gratitude is powerfully spelled out in The Course in Miracles. They say in The Course in Miracles, it's our light, not our darkness, that scares us the most. You see, sadly, we've been educated for all these years, 8,000 years, in this world of moralistic judgments, of retributive justice, punishment, reward, deserve. We've internalized this language of judgments. And it's hard for us to stay connected to the beauty of what we are within that framework. So nonviolent communication shows us to have the courage to not be scared of facing the power and the beauty that is in each of us.
This concludes Speaking Peace with Marshall Rosenberg. Original music by Marshall Rosenberg and additional music by Stephen McNamara. For more information on the work of Marshall Rosenberg and the Center for Nonviolent Communication, please contact them at www.cnvc.org. If you would like additional copies of this audio learning program or to receive a free catalog of audio, video, and music for the inner life, please contact Sounds True, www.soundstrue.com, or call us toll-free, 1-800-333-9185, or write the Sounds True catalog, P.O. Box 8010, Boulder, Colorado, 80306. Thank you for listening.